this is a great opportunity for me. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to get to know our, um, the different elders. And one of those is Rick Malik, who's coming up to preach for you today. Um, as most of you know, he's had a very successful career as a military in the military and then uh, went on to study in the ministry. And he's studying here in the ministry for the ministry in our church right now. Um, and one thing I've learned about Rick from our time together is that he doesn't just preach the word with his words, which he'll do for you today, but he also does it with his life. So I appreciate having you come forward. So thank you. Well, good morning. It's always <clears throat> always an honor to get up in the pulpit and bring God's word to you. And uh, it's been a while since I preached. I was supposed to preach, what was it, last September? I had my sermon already, and the hurricane came through, remember? We had to cancel service. Don't worry, I'm not preaching that sermon. That sermon was for uh, the Ref- Reformation Month, but I have a different one that I'm going to uh, bring to you this morning. Something that I've been thinking about uh, for a while. I'm going to do the thing that you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to talk politics and religion together, right? Well, I'm going I'm to talk a little politics today, a lot of religion, a lot of theology, and uh, hopefully uh, as we go through this uh, God will speak to your hearts. I am a little tired, you know. I, I do miss that uh, hour of sleep, right? And not only that, my wife just worked my tail off yesterday in the garden, plant, you know, digging up plants and replanting them. And uh, I hope I can get through it today. But, you know, I have to admit, she's a trooper. I couldn't keep up with her. And uh, we'll see. I think we should be able to get through that. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 7. We have two uh, scripture readings this morning. Going to read an Old Testament scripture as well as one in the New. And I have a lot of scripture for you today. So hold, put on your seatbelts, and we're going to be going through a lot of the Word of God. This is more of a topical study. Psalm 46. The title of my message is, What City Do You Hope In? What City Do You Hope In? Let's hear God's Word. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now jump with me to Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We're going to jump to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day with awe and praise in our hearts, for you are a holy God. We thank you for your word uh, that you have given us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who was given to die on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that has been given to live within us, to open and illumine our minds to your truth. I pray this morning that as I bring forth these words, that, Lord, these words would touch our hearts. And, Lord, they would bring glory to your name and draw us closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 410 A.D. The Goths, a Germanic barbarian tribe from the north, came down and sacked Rome. The city of Rome had, up to that time, was losing much of its political and economic significance in the empire, but it still had great symbolic and psychological importance. Rome was the eternal city. When it was sacked, it sent shockwaves rippling throughout the empire. And as often happens in times of crisis, people look for someone to blame, to answer questions. Why? The pagans, they blamed the Christians. They said Rome had fallen because, you know, we abandoned our old gods. We disestablished that religion, and now the gods are retaliating by withdrawing protection. You know, it was only 100 years earlier that Christianity was made legal in Rome with Constantine in 313 A.D. But it wasn't only the uh, pagans that were asking questions. The Christians were as well. Many Christians reacted with stunned despair. They were reasoning in their hearts. If Rome had fallen, maybe the end of the world was at hand. Many in the church had lost hope. Because you see, the church's hope was inextricably linked with the Roman state and empire at that time. Someone had to answer questions. Well, there was a great theologian, probably one of the premier theologians ever to live, named Augustine. And Augustine responded with his monumental work called The City of God. And in that work, he showed that Rome was far from being the ideal and final state. Rather, it was another empire, just like others. And as the others had passed away, Rome would most likely pass away too. Think about it. There was what? Egypt. The great Assyrian Empire, Babylon, Persia, Greece, now Rome. And you could even fast forward beyond that and look at civilizations and look at empires that have collapsed. The Ottoman Empire, the Soviet Union, various dynasties in China. For Augustine, he saw that history was not some random process controlled by blind, uncaring fate, but rather for him... The Bible revealed a God who is the almighty ruler of history, working a plan of redemption for his people, the church, the elect. History for him was a tale of two cities, the city of God or the heavenly city and the city of man or the earthly city, which are intimately blended together with one another in this life until one day they will be separated by the final judgment. These two cities, he said, are formed by two different loves. The earthly, the love of self to the contempt of God. Whereas the heavenly city, the love of God to the contempt of self. 
The one city glories in itself. The other city glories in God. You know, there have been many parallels drawn over the last 50 years or so between the United States and the Roman empires to its demise. Whether you look at things like the breakup of the nuclear family, excessive taxes and debt. I mean, what are we out? $20 trillion national debt. This mad craze for pleasure and sports, the internal decadence and immorality, overextension of the military, and the decay of religion, just to name a few. Now, I'm not up here this morning saying the United States is going to collapse. God only knows that. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, it's fair to say that we see some cracks in our foundation. Many people on both sides of the political aisle sense something is not right and they're losing hope in our future. Oh, you may feel right now a little shot of hope based on the recent election and the economy seems to be upticking. But when you pull that back, there are many trends that are pointing downward when it comes to our religious liberty, sexual liberty, which now trumps religious liberty. Technological overreach, civic discourse. You know, one of the things that shocks me now is just the vitriol and hatred that you see uh, over all the social media of these days, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You know, the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think now we have a society and culture where we hide behind our blogs, behind our computer, faceless, nameless, And we spew out anger and animosity uh, towards each other. You saw it in the last election. I mean, it was amazing to me just within the church. People that were on both sides, Christians going at each other over the election. I think our civic discourse has gone down. If you've done any studying of political science in the past, you know that factions are what causes a breakup of a government, of a society, of a culture. Interestingly, in 2015, the American Psychological Association wrote a report called Stress in America. 63% of Americans say the future of our nation stresses them out much or somewhat. And those that are younger, the millennial age, it was even much higher. Just two weeks ago, I read an article in USA Today. It's got a long title. Listen to it. The chaos of life and its collision with technology and tragedy has more of us feeling drained, frazzled, and emotionally overrun. Put simply, we are exhausted. And the article went on to say, well, what's to blame? And the list is long. They said, look at wildfires, terror attacks, rising tensions with North Korea, racist rallies, political investigations in Washington, nonstop barrage of presidential tweets, mass shootings from Las Vegas to Florida, tsunami of sexual harassment accusations, the role of Russians in the election, climate change, red, blue state, discord, division, three of the worst hurricanes that ever happened. And you put together, and it's understandable why, Americans are exhausted, limping along, running out of gas. People are losing hope in the American dream. I look across the audience, the congregation today, and I'm 56. I'm probably probably about the median, you know, at the median. You know, half of you are probably younger than me and half are older. So I've seen more than half of you. And there are people here that have seen more than me. And I have to admit, this has been happening over probably the last 10 years. I do not like the way things are going in this country. 
And then I have to ask myself, well, what is my hope really in? What am I hoping in? Is my hope inextricably linked with the state like those that were in the Roman Empire and the state collapsed and boom, they lose faith, they doubt, they get discouraged? I have to admit I'm not too optimistic for my children, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, and I may be wrong, and I hope that. But I have to say today, we put too much hope in our earthly city versus the heavenly city and the kingdom of God. So today I want to look at how should we as Christians live? How should we think as our society may seem to be unraveling in some ways? And I think by looking at uh, Augustine's two-city model as well as the scripture passages we talked about today, we could maybe address it somewhat. And then at the end, I'm going to rally it back to those verses, and we're going to have some practical application how to live. But what I want to do is develop this idea of the two cities. I think it's quite interesting when you break it down. First, some definition of terms. You know, the Hebrew word for city is er, I-R, just literally means city or town. But the Greek word for city is quite interesting. It's polis, P-O-L-I-S. Where do you think words we get from that? Metropolis, politics. Police, because it means more specifically than city, it means the inhabitants of city. So today, for definition terms, when I'm talking about city, you know, most of us, we think in terms of uh, nation, state. But back then in in ancient uh, Near East culture, most people thought in cities because they were city-states. But when I say city, I'm talking about nation or state. But think of the community. Think of the culture. Think of the government, everything that makes up a city. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. After Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden because of sin, we see this first idea of an earthly city. We see the first city of man being built by Cain after he kills Abel. In Genesis 4.17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son Enoch. Now, don't ask me who all the inhabitants of Enoch were. You know, that's a big theological question. But I think the point of the writing is, is that they want it to be known that a city was built named Enoch. But notice that this city was built after fratricide. You know, bloodshed is a common thread in the founding of most ancient cities. In fact, Roman legend said that Romulus killed his brother Remus and then founded this Roman Empire. It has been the victors of war who have carved out cities and states and nations. Bloodshed many times is what's the founding of a city. But do you know the heavenly city is founded on bloodshed, right? The blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who shed his blood for our sins to build his church, his people for a heavenly city one day. Meanwhile, we knew God had a plan of redemption, right? When he had thrown Adam and Eve out and he talked about how the, 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 the head would be bruised and the foot would be bruised by the serpent. In Genesis 4.25 it says, And Adam knew his wife and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain had killed him. And then it goes on to say, And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we know from Luke chapter 3 that Seth is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. However, it didn't take long before Seth's descendants would become corrupt in sin along with Cain's. However, God had a plan of salvation, right? 
Noah. Genesis 6, 5 said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord spared Noah and his family while the people and the cities were destroyed. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. And what's he say? He says, Noah, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Fill the earth. Two chapters later, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, listen to this, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And you know, the name of that town was called Babel, which derived its meaning from the Hebrew word confused. Can you see it right there at the beginning? God said, go into all the world. And they say, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to raise up a tower. We're going to have our own city. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And you look throughout history, nations have rise and fall because of people wanting to make a name for themselves, the city of man. You know, Babylon come from that same word, Babel. And most scholars believe that that's the same city. In fact, what is the most cited city in the Bible? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? 806 times Jerusalem is cited in the Bible. Jerusalem, the capital that David established of the people of Israel. But we also see this idea of a heavenly Jerusalem, which we will talk about. Babylon is the second most cited city at 260. There appears when you look throughout scripture, there's a conflict between Babylon and Jerusalem. The city of man and the city of God. Let's jump forward now. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing and you all families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, the writer of Hebrews who we read today had a fuller picture than what Moses had written about Abraham. Yes, Abraham was going out to a land, but the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew Christians said something that we read today, right? That Moses was, or Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. How did Abraham live? Tents, just moved around. He was looking something beyond an eternal city that was in his heart. Let's go all the way to the end of the Bible. This is fascinating. Revelation chapter 21. Starts with a city, it ends with a city. Revelation 21, and I would encourage you to read Revelation 21 and 22. Great, great uh, picture of heaven of the eternal city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. There it is. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jump with me over Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. There it is again. Also on each side of the river, the tree of life. Where do we see the tree of life? Garden of Eden. Where did we see in Psalms today about a city whose streams make glad? Beautiful, beautiful picture. We need to think about our eternal city, our home one day. Now, for you that were in Sunday school class today uh, in the auditorium, you know, there was one thing he talked about. He said, sometimes, you know, we know what Christ did for us and we know we're going to heaven and we, we tend to not focus so much on our lives now. I, th- I tend to think that we don't think about heaven enough. Let me ask you this. How many times did you think about heaven this week? I didn't think much about it. Where is our hope? Where is our hope? Let's go back to Psalm 46. A couple points I want to pull out today for practical application. Where is your hope? Is it in the heavenly city? Is it in the earthly city? Number one, first point is we need to recognize that the earthly city is temporal. And that it changes. If you read Psalm 46, the only thing that is stable is God. Right? It starts off, you are in the military, right? You've given a lot of briefings. I gave a lot of briefings in my time. It kind of changed as my career got towards the end. And they started having this thing called the bluff. Right? You know what bluff is, right? Bottom line up front. So you do your first slide, you would put your bluff out there. So you would tell them, this is what I'm going to prove or the point I want to get across, okay? This psalm has a bluff, right? He is our refuge and strength, present help in time of trouble. But notice the next few verses. Notice the hyperbole, the exaggeration. Notice that the psalmist is saying the earth is giving way. The mountains are trembling. They're being moved into the sea. Waters are roaring and foaming, nations raging, kingdoms tottering. He's painting this picture of a world that's in chaos. It's out of control. I mean, you cannot think, this is like a worst case scenario picture. Your world's just crumbling around you. Our world is crumbling. Where is our hope? Where is our focus? It should be in the Lord. And then... He puts in there that picture. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, right? Of a stream that makes glad the city of our God. He's trying to contrast the chaos and the world that's collapsing around us with the city of God and the beautiful stream. You know, that promise is scalable. What I mean by scalable is that it applies from the smallest problem that you're going through in life to 
total, everything is, your world is just crashing in on you, right? It's when those problems are smaller that we need to put our trust in God and look to God. And then when those times come when they're huge, we will go to the Lord. You know, I think of uh, the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? It was at the beginning when they were taken captive to Babylon. There's that city, Babylon, from Jerusalem. We'll talk a little bit about that. And immediately they they made a commitment. They weren't going to violate themselves with the king's food. And so they asked that they not be, have to take it. It was a small thing. God honored them. They looked to God for help, for strength. It would be later that they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. Can you imagine being thrown into a fiery furnace? But they had faith. They had faith and hope in God. And they said, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idol. They were able to look to God. We need to look to God. He's a big God. He's a sovereign God. I love Isaiah chapter 40. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. Who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Can you see the picture of like a dandelion, you know, and you just, it's gone. Nations rise and they fall. Kingdoms rise and they fall. The only thing stable is God in Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Trinity, the Spirit of God. Our hope must be in them. This has been the message Joe's been preaching in Ecclesiastes, right? All is vanity and striving after the wind under the sin. So we need to recognize, first point, recognize that the earthly city is temporal and it will change. Our country will change. It's always changing. You know, a lot of us, we like to say, oh, I wish for the good old days, you know. Back, I always tell my kids, you know, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, we'd leave the house at 7 in the morning and we'd go miles and miles and, you know, and come back for dinner at night. And, you know, and now they say, Dad, you won't even let us go up to the corner without worrying about us, you know. Well, there has been things that have changed, but there's also things back then you know, necessarily, I don't want today. But life moves on. Things change. What is it we put our hope in? And that's my second point. Second point, put your ultimate hope in God. Look to where God sits, the city of God. Hope. We talked about that a little in the Sunday school class today. Because hope is what gives direction in our lives, right? Hope. Reminds me of the story of a man went to a Little League baseball game. Got there just a tad bit late. He goes up to the dugout. He sees a young guy there. He says, son, what score? The boy turns and says, sir, we're losing 18 nothing." Man looks at him and said, you must be discouraged. He said, discouraged? I'm not discouraged. We haven't even got the bat yet. (laughs) That boy had hope. He had hope. We need hope, right? In the midst of chaos. 
The psalmist paints a picture of the city of God whose streams make glad the city of God. What you hope for and I hope for informs, powers, and animates our lives. You got to have hope. We all have hope in something or another, right? Some single people out there one day hoping to find a husband or wife. There's some parents out there hoping that your single child will find a husband or a wife. (laughs) Some of you are hoping, you put great hope in your vacation one day. I can't wait to go on a vacation. Some of you have hopes of getting your kids through school. There's probably some in here hoping that the sermon will end soon. (laughs) But I know nobody out there is like that. It's okay to have hopes. It's okay to have hopes in our earthly city, but our ultimate hope must be in Jesus Christ, must be in the eternal city of God. You can have hope in America will be a good place to live. It just can't be your ultimate hope because if that hope comes crumbling crumbling down, what do you have left? Paul says it best, Colossians 3, 1 through 2, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, some translations say affections, on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You know, you always hear that thing. Well, you know, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's not true. We don't think about heaven enough. We don't think about God enough. We don't think about his kingdom enough. That's the prayer, right? Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as is what? In heaven. What Jesus say? Matthew 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to be seeking the kingdom. What do we set our affection on? What, let me ask you, what occupies most of your thinking? You know, let's be honest. I'm... We think about, you know, paying the next bill. We think about, you know, getting through the next little crisis. We think about getting through this sickness. And those are okay. But sometimes we have to do like the psalm says, and we have to pull back from amidst all the chaos, all the destruction, all that's going around, and look up to God. Look up to God. We need to have hope excited hope in God. We need to be like Jacob. Remember Jacob, the story of Jacob? His uh, mother uh, didn't want Jacob to marry the women uh, around him, and so she sent him off to her brother Laban to find a wife, and Jacob gets there and goes out to a well, and this beautiful gal comes out, and he's smitten with love, just in love. He's just so much in love with her. And then he meets Laban, and Laban, they strike up a deal. He says, well, you know, I'll give her to you, but you have to work seven years. Seven years. The Bible says that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. It went like that. It went like that. That's what hope does, anticipation. We need to have that hope. All right, third point. We need to walk in the earthly city as a citizen of heaven. You know the verse, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham lived on the earth. Abraham did quite well for himself, but he was a nomad. He was constantly traveling around. He lived in tents. He was very mobile, right? And a lot of you in here, most of you are 
are in the military or related to someone in the military or have been in the military, and you know what it's like to live kind of this transient mobile life, right? You're constantly moving around. I think in my 27 years, I moved 13, 14 times, you know? And so you go to a place and you really don't put your roots down too deep because you know you're going to be moving, right? You know you're going to be picking up. However, that doesn't stop you from getting involved in the community, getting involved in the local culture, getting involved in the church. Many of you, we have great people come here. They know they're going to leave in two or three years, but they invest themselves here. But they know they're not going to be here in three years from now. Some of you are leaving this summer. It's a lifestyle. It's an attitude, becoming part of the local community and culture, however, recognizing that this is not our home. We should be good renters. My wife and I always talk about this, you know, because we moved all the time. We rented predominantly because really it's hard to make any money on a house in a couple years. And, I, and we would, whenever we moved to a house and rented, we would fix it up. You know, she would plant flowers and plants and make it look good. And people would look at her like, why are you doing that? Well, it's like we live here. This is where we're living right now. We want it to look nice. Yes, we don't own it, but we live here. That's what God calls us. We're stewards, right? Stewards of what God has given us. And we're stewards here on the earth. It's been given to us. We're to use it. We're to enjoy it. But we almost have to have like this renter's mentality. One day we'll give it to him and we move on. The problem is we get into a place. and We've been here now eight years. And what happens? You stuff, right? More and more stuff. And you get it into your every little hole and place you can find. You accumulate, right? And that's what happens spiritually many times. We accumulate a lot of stuff because we're not like Abraham. We're not in a tent. We're not looking to the future. We're not moving, thinking about heaven. We need to do that. I think the best advice, and this is great. Again, we're getting back to this idea of the cities. But remember, I talked about Babylon and Jerusalem. So you know the story that uh, the uh, Judah the king disobeyed God. They followed idols. They were constantly told. Prophets would come, says, you need to quit serving idols. You need to follow God. You need to obey God. And they continually did not. And what did he say? You're going to be taken captive by this Babylonian empire. They're going to come down. They're going to take you. They're going to take all your smartest people. And they're going to move you all the way up to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years. Well, what did God say to them? How were they supposed to live while they lived in Babylon? Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. My thought today and idea is not creating this two cities to say that we're to pull out of the city and lose all hope And become some kind of monk or something. We are to do exactly what they say. We have hope. Our hope's in Christ. It's only 
It's all right to have hope in our city, but as our city, we need to get there. We need to pray for it. We need to hope for its welfare. We need to be salt. We need to be light. We need to bring Christ to bear wherever we are in the city. But realize, 70 years, you will be going back to Jerusalem. Going back to Jerusalem. The holy city, the heavenly city. So we need to keep on living. We need to be a good citizen. We need to seek the welfare and pray for them. I'm not hopeless. I may be a little discouraged by what's going on in our country. But when I look up and realize the eternal city that's waiting for you and for me and Christ who's sitting at the right hand of the Father, it helps me. It helps me. I'm concerned a little bit what environment and city my kids are going to grow up, but I know one day they will be with me in heaven, in the city. That's what it's all about. You know, that's what it's all about. I can't think of a better way than this sermon than First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to these words of Peter, who, by the way, when he wrote this, the church was going through great persecution. This was first century Rome. This was not fourth century when all this was happening and fifth century when Augustine was writing. But first century when there's tremendous persecution going on. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Are you born again today to that living hope? Do you have that imperishable reward, inheritance in heaven? I hope you do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that hope that we have in Christ, that hope we have in that eternal city, that hope we have that you are our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. Help us, Lord, to elevate our minds and our hearts to those things above. Help us to balance, Lord, the many difficulties and drudgery of day-to-day living with the reality of where we will be one day in eternity. Help us to rise above that, Lord. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you as their Savior and Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, open up their eyes to the light of your glorious gospel, that they may come to know you for who you are. We pray, Father, that you would just continue to make us and help us to be good citizens, citizens here on earth, but ultimately citizens in heaven. Again, we thank you for your spirit and for this word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.